That's improv, bitch. Improv, bitch. I mean, after all, you're nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Welcome, everybody. This is another episode of Improv Nerd, and I am the host, Jimmy Corain. And thanks for joining us and listening to the podcast, and happy holidays. We're back to work here at uh, Improv Nerd, and I'm coming to you live from the Improv Nerd Studios, which is on our my wife and I's queen-size bed. And by the way, we'll be getting a new queen-size bed January 8th. So I think you're going to see... Uh, a lot of changes it, it, with Improv Nerd, you know, in the next uh, couple months. But the biggest one will be uh, will be the new mattress because it's got uh, on it has got this pillow top. I think they pillow top uh, cover. Uh, so that that should really help the 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 sound cover, the sound quality of the program. Speaking of the program, we have a great show for you today. Uh, I have to say this. Personally, this is one of the fav- one of my most favorite episodes we did. Not only as an interview, but as an imp- to get to improvise with this guest. It's Tim Baltz is our guest, and Tim, you might know him from those U.S. Cellular spots. He plays the spokesman. Um, you might also know him if you check out his web series, which is called Shrink, and uh, it's fully improvised. It just won a huge award in New York. Uh, and Tim was actually a student of mine like eight or nine years ago. He had taken this individual assessment workshop, which Liz Allen and I had. Actually, it was the the workshop that the book Improvising Better that we eventually co-wrote came out of. Uh, so Tim, the thing I liked about Tim was Tim always had a wonderful work, work ethic. And he talks about it in this interview on how... He uses his work ethic in his comedy. He talks about Second City, of course. Uh, what I also really liked about this interview was Tim talked about growing up, and he talked about two things that I found to be very fascinating. One is he lived in a bicultural household. His father uh, was from the States here. His mother was French. And he talks about how it, 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 it shaped his perspective growing up and into comedy. Uh, he also talked about uh, in grammar school how he started out being funny, and uh, that's that's a really nice uh, part of the interview as well. I think you're really going to get a chalk full of stuff. It doesn't matter where you are in your improvising. I think this is a really uh, uh, great, great podcast, and I hope you learn a lot from it. So here it is, the Tim Baltz episode. I want to thank you because backstage, you're the, I was I was like I was debating if I was going to go to the bathroom or not. And what did you tell me? I was like, you got to go to the bathroom. Otherwise, you'll be thinking about that the whole time. Right. <laughs> and the slight discomfort will turn into genuine discomfort. Will turn into like kind of panicking about you know going to the bathroom. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now you love American presidents. I do. Yeah. Who is your favorite president and why? Uh, uh, that's. I mean, it. 
it kind of switch. I kind of have like a top five, and depending on what I read, like I'll sub different ones into the different. Right. Or like how I'm feeling emotionally, I'll like certain ones. Okay, you know. you're feeling sad. Who's your favorite president? Uh, William McKinley. Angry. Andrew Jackson. <laughs> really excited. Harry Truman. Great. You want to have sex with your girlfriend that night? Me, Clinton. <laughs> Harrison, the, what, we have like four. Are we playing quarters tonight? Or? You guys look thirsty. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, you grew up in Jul- uh, Joliet. Yeah. A uh, uh, working class uh, suburb. Uh, not a suburb, really. A city not outside a suburb, of Chicago. Yeah. Your mom is French. Mm-hmm. And your dad was actually like an actor, right? Yeah, he uh, he went away to school. He went to University of Washington, Seattle, to get his undergrad in theater after bouncing around to a couple different places. And uh, he finished there, and then he got a master's in theatrical history from U of I, and uh, that was probably like right around Vietnam. Um, and then he started, uh, yeah, he started acting professionally. He was on tour with the Goodman, doing a children's theater with the Goodman, while Christopher Walken was Thoreau in the night Thoreau spent in jail. Uh, so it was like early seventies. And then Does he have any good stories about working with Christopher Walken? Well, he didn't work with him, but he, okay. he did say my college girlfriend gave me a copy of that book uh, for like Christmas or some meaningful event or some like our anniversary or something. Everything was so laden with meaning uh, between she and I, which was good at the at the time. Um, and he gave me, uh, she gave me that, and she had inscribed like a very like meaningful message on the inside cover. And I showed it to my dad, and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, when I, when I was on the road uh, with the Goodman, uh, Christopher Walken was on the, the main stage there uh, as Thoreau. And I was like, oh, my God, what did he sound like as Thoreau, you know? And he's like, oh, no, at the time, he would suppress his accent, as a lot of regional actors do that had strong accents. He would suppress it, so he didn't sound like the way he sounds now. But I still thought it was hilarious, so she came over, I told her this, and I started doing walking as Thoreau. And I was like, Mother, I met this man named Emerson, uh, and he says, I need to leave school. Harvard is not for me. And, and that just, she, that really was like a bridge that I had crossed. Uh, and we never really recovered from it. You really think that's what did it? Uh, she was very upset. I, that's not what did it. Many things contributed, but uh, but that was. I remember her being very upset about that. Yeah. I think um, your your what was it like? So your mom's French, your dad's American. What's it like? What's your perspective growing up in a you know two cultures in the house? Yeah, and two cultures that that really couldn't be more opposite. There's nothing more different than uh, the French culture than like a working class middle American town. Uh, it was difficult. It, you know, there was half of myself that I just couldn't share with the people that I saw all the time, which were my peers, you know. Um, if someone came over and they heard my mom speaking French to me, you know, they'd be like, well, why does your mom like make those noises? <laughs> uh, and I'd be like, well, she's from France. Well, why? Well, she was born there. Why? Oh my God! Like how? How can you explain something like that to a first grader or a second grader? So it, I think, innately, I had a little bit of tension, but because I had two cultures, I had a perspective that my my classmates didn't have. And uh, after probably years of you know what what I didn't know at the time was probably tension and 
anxiety and frustration turned into kind of like pressurized my sense of humor. So by the end of junior high, um, I kind of had a, a voice, you know, I, I was like, by, by the time I got to college and started studying surrealism, I was like, oh, yeah, that's like my brain. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is what happens all the time. Is that I look at people, I'm like, why would you act like that? This is absurd. Uh, there are other ways to act. Like, what? And because of that, I started to look at um, you know, popularity and uh, the social interactions, the notion of cool, and how that doesn't really, it, it doesn't exist. There's no objective cool because it's completely relative based on whatever group you're in, you know? A certain group is going to chase glory in a different way than, a, than uh, another group. Because I've never felt cool in my life. I mean, there's been times, maybe 10 minutes or a day or something like that, but I've never <laughs> felt like this, this what they call long-term uh, coolness. Yeah. I, if I have, it, I didn't enjoy it. Like, it, I didn't trust it, right? Because it doesn't last. People, the people that give it, I mean... Do you really want to be that person that's like at, at 16 or 17, you're cool, and then that's how you define cool, and then 20 years later, that's still how you're defining cool? Because those people are out there. You know those people. Yeah, I do. Like, I, I know those people, and I, that, that makes me deeply uncomfortable. So the, the two cultures kind of just made me want to try different things. You know, life is about, uh, it's, a, it's a plurality. Um, and most people are uncomfortable with that because it threatens their idea of how things should be, what is cool, you know, their judgment, their taste. It threatens that. It shouldn't, but it does. Um, so I think I was probably a little more comfortable with that and by virtue, by default, less comfortable with the idea of someone being like, you're so not cool. So in junior high, you're, you're developing your sense of humor, and there was uh, something that I had read on, on the Internet uh, uh, my girlfriend always makes fun of it. I, I call it the Twitter, the internet. It's really, I really, we're 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 14 years apart, and I really want to make it clear that I'm much older than she. <laughs> uh, so you put articles in front of everything. Articles in front of everything. Yeah. The Taco Bell, the Jewel. Um, <laughs> in seventh grade, okay, you were developing a sense of humor, mm -hmm. and there's a, and you were doing it. You, your 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 kind of way of being funny was taking movie quotes and quoting movies. Yeah. Now there's another guy who's working the same side of the street in seventh grade, and you guys have a little confrontation. Do you remember? I I really want to know what happened when you, you guys <laughs> confronted each other. Yeah, yeah. I'm Facebook friends with this guy now. Um, <laughs> basically, we were quoting Chris Farley's Van Down by the River, and the the famous Saturday Night Live famous, sketch. Yeah, I love Chris Farley. I'm a huge fan, and. Uh, this one of this guy's like lackeys uh, came up to me and was like, "Hey man, you can't quote that." <laughs> and, I, and I was like, "Well, why can't I quote this?" And he's like, "Well, because uh, Matt's been quoting it for a couple of days already." And I was like, "Yeah, it's it's not his either." <laughs> and and it, I mean, you start to realize that I mean, that's how you trade. It's how you trade. Uh, I don't know. I, what's the word I'm looking for? It's 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 another way to say like, hey, you, me, sit right here, living, huh? We're live, yeah, cool. Like trading quotes from movies uh -huh. is a way to do that. Is a way to like look at another person and be like, are you gonna kill me? Because I'll kill you before you kill me. But we're alive. We're not gonna kill each other. We both like Kingpin. Okay. <laughs> No one's going to die. We just quoted the same movie. But. So a couple of years after that, then you go down to I.O. and you see a show. Yeah. And what changes after when you saw that show? Well, that, that kind of blew my mind.
because my friends and I would joke around a lot and have a good time and like you know anyone who's not I was definitely not outcast uh, going through junior high or high school I was lucky that I was very good at sports I played a lot of sports and um, I was always at least good enough to play in the game uh, whereas uh, some other people weren't and they were social outcasts because of that um, I never even made it to that tier <laughs> yeah, to that tier uh, so I kind of I kind of knew that uh, humor was something that I enjoyed uh, creating with my friends, and I was having a good time kind of being the class clown, uh, especially in high school. Once I got to high school, I, uh, my first semester was a little bit of a rude awakening. I went to a public charter school in Joliet that only exists in Joliet, Australia, and Hawaii, and there's only seven schools, and they don't give grades. <laughs> So I got to high school after eight years of that and was like, oh, man, I would much rather just like be the kid in the back of the class trying to make the teacher laugh and everybody else than get the grade. So first semester was a rude awakening, but I, I really enjoyed that. And I went to I.O., and I, what I saw was people doing that at a much higher level than what I was doing it at. And it inspired me because they were weaving all this meaning into their work. So it wasn't just this disposable joke that you would then go back to. Because if you said something funny, odds are your friends would remember it and then they would quote it. So that was the next level after quoting movies was to get a friend to quote something that you said. I, I used to love that. That was, yeah, that, that was that's, yeah. It's empowering. Yeah. It was great. And then I would see these shows and my, like, uh, my friend Keith and I saw this show and we saw Bucket, uh, which had TJ Jagodowski and Greg Mills. Was it Harold Team? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jen Bills, um, Bob Dassey was sitting in that night because they were low on people. I found out years later they were low on people. And um, we still quote, like, uh, Greg Mills came out and, like, accused someone of, like, fucking a Belgian. <laughs> like, fucking the Belgian guy to take out their rage. That was how they took out their rage throughout that whole Herald. They'd just be like, oh, well, hey, things aren't going right. Just go fuck that Belgian. <laughs> and they dropped that reference a couple times early in the show. And then in the second beat, like looking in my, in my head, I realized it was probably the second beat, uh, TJ was off stage and just like started pounding the wall and in a Belgian accent going like, God damn shit, fuck. <laughs> I realized, like, oh, he's doing the second beat. He's doing, like, it's a heightened version. And, and it, it, like, we've gone through time and different narratives. And, and it was a plurality. You're seeing the three parts of the first beat, uh, like, you know, kind of evolve and blossom in the second beat. And then everything kind of crescendos together in the third beat in this beautiful package. That was, it was living poetry to me. I was blown away by it. And I knew I wanted to... I knew I wanted to try it, and I knew I was kind of the funniest person among my friends growing up, and I kind of held my breath hoping that I would be as good at improv as I was at making my friends laugh. So I held my breath a lot going through um, you know, classes and things like that, hoping that I, that I could get good enough, hoping that I would... I would be able to make an audience of strangers laugh the way that I could make my friends laugh. I How long did it take you to do that? Uh, I don't know. It's kind of get to a point where I could make an uh, audience laugh because it's easy to make your friends laugh because my experience because you're so comfortable with them and you know the reference level and there's history and stuff like that. Yeah. How long did it take you to when you got on stage? You're like, you know what? I, I think I can do this. 
well, I think I took level A through E at Second City, and at the very least, and I think we talked about this before, at the very least, I knew that I wanted it and was more geeked out about it than anyone else around me. So I, I thought that bodes well. That, that means that I could probably keep doing this uh, for a while, or at least until I get into a situation where I look around and I'm like, oh, man, these people want it more than me. And I don't really think that's happened yet, where I've gotten into a situation where I think, oh, these people want it more than me. As much? Yeah, for sure. Which is great, because then you know you get a lot of synergy and there's a lot of excitement and inspiration in the room. Um, but at the time, I remember thinking, oh, I should keep doing this for a while longer to see how far I can get it, because I'm clearly super excited about it. So I'd say probably, like, by the time I started to take I.O. classes right after I graduated, um, my friend Seth Whiteberg and I started to do a two-person show when we were in level three, and he just signed us up for shows, like, around town. And that well, was, that guy was very driven. Very he, driven. Is, he is totally driven. Totally. And, you know, and it almost pisses people off, I think, sometimes. For sure. Driven. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he's made a lot of peace with that. I don't uh. know if other people have. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in a way, I was a 23-year-old that just wanted to show up and play ball. And he was the guy who was going to play ball, but also, like, set up where we were going to play and who we were going to play against and all, do all those things. And I, I had no desire or real foresight to, to do that at the time. But and I was happy to let him do but that. But you also talk about when you were in your 20s, 23, 24, stuff like that, that you had ambition, but you were hiding it. Yeah. Do you know what, what, what was that ambition you were hiding and, and why? Well, I wanted to be the best I could be. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, wanted to be I wanted to be great at what I did. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to stare down any situation and know that I was going to be fine. I wanted total comfort on stage. You know, I wanted, the, I wanted to get to a place where... Uh, you know, the fear always comes. Right. You can take like a week off and all of a sudden you've got more fear than you had when you were like after your third show ever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that's that's just the way that fear <clears throat> operates, I think, in the human body. Um, unless you're confronting it over and over and over again, it just comes back. Uh, I wanted to get to a place where even if I had that rust and the fear came back, I had the chops or I had the, um, you know, the, the tools in my arsenal to just be like, okay, fear, great, I'm going to put that fear over here, I'm going to deal with this. Um, get to a, a place where you could really calm yourself on stage and, and do whatever you wanted. I don't know. Does that answer the question? I yeah. And then, the question. and then the, the, to me, it's like we were talking a little about backstage, about living in this dual culture. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so there, there's a sense of hiding. And I thought it was a, you know, something that you got from Catholicism. But you think it's, you got it from living in a, you know, two, di- two different culture ho- household. Yeah. I don't think I went to confession enough to feel that Catholicism contributed to that. To me, it was far deeper to see two cultures at odds with each other mm-hmm. constantly. Like, as soon as I left the house, I, you know, I dealt with that every single day, and, and I kind of hid how much I dealt with that because it's like you just don't want to be overwhelmed by something like that when you're growing up, when you're a kid. Well, was it shame of, like, I have a French mom? No, it wasn't shame. It was probably fear that someone would... That someone would take issue with it, you know. It was fear that take on would you, like, make fun yeah, of you. Okay, yeah, for sure. Because um, kids are cruel; uh-huh. they're unrelenting. They don't know any better, right? And especially the French, you know. <laughs> oh, French kids! <laughs> no, f- to French kids, it was all like coca cola, chocolat. Right. Like you yeah. know, they, they they were fascinated. Right. Anytime I would visit, French kids would just be like uh, le baseball. Right. So right. it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would trot out like the the five or six, you know, American phrases that they would have, you know. 
uh, I don't know, it'd be like, uh, play basketball, Michael Jordan, uh, <laughs> or, uh, I don't even know, I forget what, what... But was that, I'm kind of embarrassed about what's going on in my house? Well, um, it was, it was more like trust issues that my peers would accept it, I think. Mm. Uh, so I would hide ambition because I think ambition was tied to what I really wanted or, or, or you know, what I really wanted inside me or who mm-hmm. I really was inside me. Because ultimately ambition, it, become, it is a part of you. Right. And, and then your relationship to it within you also colors who you are. Mm-hmm. So I think as a part of me, the same way that two cultures are a part of me, um, it got lumped into that idea that I couldn't be completely forthright with mm-hmm. it. Because uh, if I if I was, then someone might shoot holes in it, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that's one part that made it very easy to, to hook up with Seth and do shows uh, early on. Yeah, because he, does, he doesn't have, hook up. No, yeah, no, didn't no, hook up, no you we're didn't friends. Hook up. Yeah, sure. but professionally we do hook up. I'm older than you. Hook up meant just hook up was much different back then. It was just there was a connection. It wasn't anything sexual. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we met in '03, so it really meant like hook up. <laughs> Meant Jaeger bombs and waking up and being like, "Oh my god, yeah, what did we do?" Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was it was easy for me to do that because he was so forthcoming with his uh, with his ambition. I was right out there with that. It was almost it was inspiring, you know. Right. And I definitely we're two very different people, um, but I admired that part of him. His like he was completely honest, and mm-hmm. that turned a lot of people off. Um, but uh, I I envied that to a certain extent because I was the opposite. I just wanted to show up and do the show, you know? I just wanted to show up and, like, almost, like, be the talent. Like, I, I just wanted to show up and shoot, um, to put it in basketball terms, because... But you didn't even... You, you wouldn't even consider yourself Michael Jordan. You'd be, like, more like Scottie Pippen, or, or right? Uh, yeah, I, I mean... The, the I, set, the, I mean, you won a Jeff Award on main stage. I mean, on ETC, I won it. On ETC, yeah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you, sure, you sure about that? Yeah, I'm positive. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, for this show, a lot of my students we're waiting for Tim Balls. I mean, you're considered a star in the improv community. Do you feel that at all? Uh, if I ever do, I don't let myself feel it for very long because I don't. My relationship to uh, feeling things like that probably isn't very healthy. <laughs> um, so I, I don't celebrate things the way that I should. I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. When I was a student, I, I would see, I lived a block away from I.O. Uh, the first year that I was a student. So going Clark and Addison right there. I lived at uh, Addison and Racine okay. a block away. And um, I would go to shows four or five times a week. I mean, I ate up everything. I would get the paper schedule. I'd circle all my favorite people on it. I'd go see all those shows, and I'd be like, I haven't seen this team yet. I'd go see that. I mean, I saw everybody, everything. I was a gym rat. I ate it all up. So in terms of, like, looking at the field and being like, okay, these people are here. These are, like, elite people. These people are, like, working hard. I like seeing this person, but I saw them have a dud show. Would you go home and rate them? No, I wouldn't. But, okay. you know, in my head, when you're watching it, right. you can't help but do that right. if, if, you're, if you're that kind of person. Um, so I knew, and then and then hang out with Seth and like Barry Height and the people on our first Herald team. I definitely had a notion of what I wanted to accomplish, and I exceeded that. I exceeded it. So sometimes I get a little. I feel like I'm floating in space a little bit. Yeah, because I I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. If I if I 
if I nostalgically go back into my head to who I was as a 23-year-old, mm-hmm. this feels weird. It feels weird. I just like doing this. You know what I mean? And I love quality. I love quality. I am a, I am a total... I can't really say that I'm a Nazi about stuff because of the way that I look. <laughs> and also because I'm French, you know. Right. They, yeah, please. They invaded me. Yes. They, yes. They, they, please. they penetrated my soul. Uh, but... Um, and my mom was born during bombardments. You okay. Know? Um, but I. Uh, Do you want me to edit that part out? No, no, okay. that's fine. Great. That's fine. I think I covered my. Tracks. Okay, I think you did too. <laughs> just don't put a picture up. Just put a question mark where my headshot was. Okay. Great. <laughs> um, but I am super obsessed with quality. Like, okay. And that's another reason that Seth and I got along really well. Is I'm go along to get along. I'm pretty carefree, but I'm obsessed with quality, and uh, I really want to be doing things at a high level. So, to me, to get all those compliments is nice but it makes me a little fidgety because I just want to keep working you know and you said there's something interesting too that you said was that because of uh, when you go when you get like big opportunities you, you go from ETC to main stage or they put you on a Herald team or something like that doubt starts to creep in can you tell us a little about that well I think if you're if you're excelling at a certain level and someone asks you to go to the next level the next level involves more work Every next level, if you want to have the same quality at that next level, the same quality at this level that you had at this level is going to require way more work. Because if you just show up at this level and do the work that you were doing here, your quality is going to be less. And I'm not okay with that. So I just keep doing work. So the doubt always comes in of like, am I going to be able to do this work? It's going to be a sacrifice. Am I ready for that sacrifice? You know, and I start to doubt that I'm ready for that sacrifice. I start to doubt that I have the quality or the talent to do or the work ethic to to have the same quality at that level that I had at this level, and that's scary. It's really scary. I also because of the I'll loop back around to the Joliet thing and the two cultures, because I wasn't able to uh, be open and upfront about those two cultures, I grew to very much dislike. Um, people that bragged about things because I had a lot that I probably could have bragged about. You know, I was bilingual. Uh, I'd been to, I've been to France like 25 or 30 times. Um, I'm a dual citizen. Like I, I have seen things that my classmates growing up like didn't see. I was very lucky coming from a lower middle class family in Joliet to have seen all those things. I was an anomaly. My sister and I are the only people like me that I've ever met. I've never met another person that was lower middle class that had all those that had all those opportunities. Usually they were like North Shore people, and they'd be like, oh, I've been to France too. And I'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, you've been to France because you had cash to burn, man. I didn't. I went to France because I wanted to see my grandparents and get to know my family. Like Fran- that, that culture was family, but French to a lot of America is an elitist symbol. So either they hate it or they practice it as a way to distance themselves from other people. And to me, it's neither one of those things. It's family. It's just family. And... I wasn't able to brag about that stuff. I wasn't able to. And I, I would see people that bragged, and I would just seethe. Because I'm like, I can't talk about this. I can't talk about any of this stuff. And you're bragging about, like, the free stuff you got at Dairy Queen. Fuck <laughs> off. Are you more comfortable bragging today? And then why do we have to call it bragging? I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's the ugly thing. I, you're right. I don't have a good relationship to... Uh, I don't have a great relationship. I'm getting better, but I don't have a good relationship to talking about those things. 
Um, I've started going on like general meetings with networks and things like that. So you sit down for like half an hour with like NBC or CBS or Comedy Central or stuff like that, just for the, so they can get to know you. You know, um, I mean, look, the, a year ago, a little less than a year ago today, I won the Jeff. Mm-hmm. Then I got moved to main stage. Then I got the Montreal Just for Last Festival. Then Big, I, a huge honor. Huge. That's huge. That's, and yeah, I didn't realize it, and then I showed huge. up and was like, thank God I prepared. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> like my, my innate discomfort with uh, lack of preparation right. uh, put me in a place to succeed there yeah. and have people be like, hey, IFC really liked you, yeah. you know, or like... Okay. The ABC family people are nuts yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'll be on an ABC yeah. family show. That'd be fun. <laughs> um, that, that was big. Then I got the SNL audition. And I had struggled for years thinking, like, do, would I want to do SNL? Would that be the right thing? Like, I really enjoy doing a lot of different things. Would that satisfy the urge, you know? The schedule is really intense. Um, there are a lot of things that people don't know about SNL. And the more you learn about it, the more you're like, wow, okay, that's... Would I want to do that? Like, I also have an odd relationship to uh, to, to ego, because uh, ego was part of like people bragging, and so if I saw ego, that was like a little ugly to me. So anytime I felt myself doing things out of ego, I felt like a fraud, and that's why I enjoy working. That's why I enjoy quality, because if people are egotistical about things, they can get away doing worse stuff, and they'll brag about it, and you're like. And people will believe them. That's what's mind-blowing. <laughs> if someone's like really egotistical and really proud of what they're doing, they can do shit. And people will be like, but look at that awesome attitude. <laughs> but you're like, no, they're doing shit work. They're hacks. They're doing bullshit. And you're like, but they're confident about it. And that always gives me hope. <laughs> it really does. Because I don't think I have much talent, but I think like I could sell it. I could, you know. Mm-hmm. And... I've, I've started to increasingly write more and more things that are salesman-oriented. In my Montreal set, in my SNL audition, like they, I had all these salesmen that were in there because I think... Salesmen part, being network people. No, like the characters that okay. were... Say, I had this one guy named Mustache Salesman um, <laughs> who was just selling mustaches. And his life is falling apart as he's doing this mustache salesman pitch. You know, It's basically like it'd be like a commercial to the camera. And he keeps having these asides, and every time he does an aside, it's about his life falling apart. And I think I'm envious of people that sell that hard uh, as I see myself have to work on that part of my arsenal. When you sit down with these network people, you have to tell them your story, you know, and, and it, it can't feel gross. And I would sit down, and, and after the first one, I was like, oh man, that felt so gross. What would you say when you went in there? Well, you're like trying not to. I was trying not to sound like I was bragging, but I'm like talking about the year that I had, which was a good. It's year. a great year. It's I'd like to year. have that. My, you know, it's my a, life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a Jeff commercials. It's a fucking anomaly. Yeah, of all the people that I looked up to coming through, they never had years like that. Yeah, and I, and I'm like, I'm just a kid who likes doing this and likes doing it at a high level, and I like I like creating things with meaning, and I like being silly, and I like laughing, and I love acting, and I want to blend all that together on the stage, you know? And they're like, uh, we can't do a show with, about that. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't talk about that. So you got to hit the bullet points and you got to be satisfied being like, I had a great year. I won the Jeff. They moved me over to main stage. You know, I did Montreal just for Laugh Festival, which was mind-blowing. Got to see, like, what the industry is like. Got the SNL audition, which was something that I told myself that I always wanted to do. And after that, 
Um, you know, during all that, I was doing a commercial campaign, which uh, allowed me to improvise and gave me a little bit more, um, you know, uh, uh, comfort in front of the camera. And uh, I like doing commercials, but I also love doing acting. And I've been able to satisfy, like, the silly part of me by doing Montreal and Just for Last. But, you know, the, um, the Jeff shows that I really have a, a talent and a desire to do acting. So I'm definitely like a wacky next-door neighbor type, but I can also be <laughs> someone who's a leading man. And you, you just rattle that off, and they're like, mm-hmm, nice, okay, this guy knows who he is. <laughs> and you have to do that without feeling like a disgusting person. <laughs> and that's not easy for me, but I've gotten a little bit better at it because my manager and agents tell me that I have to be. <laughs> Uh, we're going to improvise. We, cool. we, I still have a lot of questions to ask you. Sure. Um, so, what do we want to take to to start off? I don't know. You, you usually take like a. Suggestion. Uh, we'll take a location. We'll take uh, a relationship, a suggestion, whatever you'd like. You're the guest. How about a location? Okay, great. Could we have a location? Hawaii. Uh, something that would fit on this stage. <laughs> a bathroom. A bathroom. Okay, great. <laughs> Sorry, I know this is not cool, but I gotta brush my teeth. <laughs> Phil, I was just taking a shower. I know. Yeah, I can see. Is your girlfriend? <laughs> is your girlfriend still here? No, no, she took off. She left. You okay? I heard you screaming. <laughs> <laughs> She was like, we need to have the five-month talk. But she said that at four months. She said we need to have the four-month talk. And I know she's going to say it at six months. She's going to say we have to have the six-month talk. And at seven months, she's going to say it. And she knows what these mean, and I don't know what they mean. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, man. Yeah, you no, please. No. Just give me a floss. You brush, you brush after the shower? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should do that too. Boy, she sounded so pissed. And the thing is, I don't understand is, you just sit there and take it. Well, that's what I was taught. <laughs> She's calling you all sorts of horrible names. I know. And you're like, oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. I just want to end the conversation. I figured saying you're right would end it quicker. I don't know, man. Maybe she's not the girl for me. Or maybe she is. Maybe I need a woman like that, you know? Maybe I need a real taskmaster. <laughs> Sometimes it makes me feel comfortable. Phil. Dan. Say you have no balls. <laughs> no one, no one will say that to you, but I am going to say it to you. She says that to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't hear that. She was yelling that. At I you. heard it. I heard it. I was repeating it, and I was hoping that it would sink in. 
Why don't you say something back to her? Why don't you call her a name? She calls you every name in the book. I don't know. I don't want to hit a girl. <laughs> you know what? You hit a girl once, and they'll never... It, it teaches them a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Every time I see, like, something in the news or on TV or in a show where, like, a guy's hit a woman once, like, it seems like he can't help himself and he hits her again. <laughs> but that's the liberal media. <laughs> I don't want to have this discussion. No. Listen to me, all you gotta do, you don't have to, you don't have to hit her. Just shove her really hard into a piece of furniture. I used to push my sister under the couch. There you go. See, it's not that hard. Yeah, but that's my sister, man. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to get with my sister in a long. Well, whoa, don't go. I'm not. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. What are you? What are you? Saying? I'm saying. I'm just trying to open you up to your imagination. If you could sleep with your sister after pushing her, then. They would give you the confidence to push Maureen. So now I'm supposed to push her and then and force myself on her sexually? I'm not saying that. You are misinterpreting what I'm saying. You're saying that I, I'm saying to push her and rape her. I never said that. I No, I inferred that. You need more connectors. This, the steam is... I, I'm just saying you need to you need to take a stand in your life. Okay? Okay, the reason that you have not gotten promoted at Kinkos, all right, is the same reason <laughs> it's FedEx supply. Okay. <laughs> See, I didn't even know that. Yeah, How long have we been roommates? And I I, I you, you you don't let anybody know that they changed the name. It just it's a superficial thing. It's still Kinkos, it's the same story. No, no, no. You hide things from me. Here, I'll show you something. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I'm just I just wanted to show you that I know that you've been thinking about proposing to her. And that's why I'm saying this stuff today. I put it in a bottle of pills with a prescription on it so you wouldn't look at it. I look at everything in this medicine cabinet. Look, the four-month mark, she said, you need to have a plan. You need to be thinking about, at the six-month mark, what you're going to do and how you're going to propose to me. She said that, and she's got a plan. That's the thing. I usually don't have a plan. I appreciate that she has a plan. She has a good plan. She has a plan. She wants me to get promoted. She wants me to go back to school. You know, I don't want these things. <laughs> I'm willing to continue the conversation, but I want to. I, there's no reason I we have to do this while I'm standing in the tub. <laughs> Here's the thing, Phil. You're the guy. Okay. You need to contribute to the plan. What? What? Would it be so hard? You keep rejecting this. Would it be so hard for the three of us to have dinner together and for you and Maureen to talk about a plan for me together? I think that would be good. Because you've got some ideas. She's got some ideas. Some of them are not the same. I've got no ideas on this. You two to duke it out and come up with a bullet point plan that allows me to go to work in the morning knowing what I want to do. Phil. 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 Phil.
told you not to call me that. You must be really pissed. Man, I'm pissed. <laughs> I'm trying to help you. I am trying to help you. If you want me to go, the three of us, I'll do it. But I'll do it under protest. <laughs> you gotta have balls. You gotta take a risk. I have the bigger room here, right? Yeah, well, you had a little bit more stuff. I figured it'd be a lot easier for you to score some. But you really wanted the bigger room, didn't you? Yeah, of course. I'm taller. <laughs> <laughs> So what is preventing you, after four years, to have the bigger room? Well, you've been there for a while, and it's slightly more rent. You know, you pay 15 more a month, so 15, 15 times 12 is, hold on. Hold on. Don't do it before me. See, this is your life. Right here. What we're witnessing right here. I thought you had narcolepsy. It's $189. Look, <laughs> <laughs> this is what I do. I come up with roadblocks. I come yeah, up with do. obstacles. Okay. I put them in front of myself. And I, I let smart people like you say, that's not real. <laughs> I'm sorry, okay? But it's symbiotic at this point. You talk to me like this. If you stop talking to me like this, you know, if, if I came home every day and you had a bag over your head, and I was like, and I was like, Dan, and you just shook your head, I would learn. <laughs> that makes no sense. That makes no sense. What would you learn? I would learn. You all right? You want to know the real fear here? I want, please. Is it if I, if Maureen leaves, and I don't have someone like you? But I'll have to do it myself, and I won't be—I won't be good, you know. I—I I won't, and I'll make—I'll go down one fork in the road, and it—it it won't turn out to be the right one. And then I'll—I'll I'll go down that road for two years, and I'll look over at some other fork in the road that some other asshole went down two years earlier, and that was the good one. And then, you know, they bought the lotto ticket, and and you know, and they're swimming—they're swimming in cars and money and, and women, and I. And I'll still be at, I'll be at FedEx Supply or whatever the fuck it'll be named. <laughs> see what you're doing? You don't think you have the confidence to do this. You think I'm your confidence. You think Maureen's your confidence. She's not your confidence. She's fucking castrating you on a daily basis. Well, you can only castrate someone once. <laughs> So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. How, how do you think we did? I, I really liked it. I did too. I felt great. It had steaks. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> you, you know what? I, I got to ask you. You had said something, and, and I, I say this in classes all the time, and I got to tell you something. I've got a lot of students out there. I don't know what it means anymore to say, just react honestly. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, uh... 
all right. Right before I answer that, let me say, years ago, I took the individual assessment with you and Liz. Liz, Liz Allen, sure. Which changed everything for me. Okay. Seriously. That was six hours of the best time I'd ever spent, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass just because I'm here. Okay. That totally changed everything for okay. me. I was halfway through I.O. classes. That gave me a ton of confidence. The word you guys gave me was effervesce. Because we would give a word to each person. Yeah. And that that was, I still think about that word. I still have the sheet that you guys wrote all the notes on. Uh-huh. I have it in a little improv folder uh, that I keep in a little box, a keepsake box. And every once in a while I'll go back and look and I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember that thing. Um, but one of you had said that day that it's really important to keep living a regular life while you're obsessed with this craft, while you're obsessed with any craft, because it'll bring normalcy back to your craft. And it'll help you remember that your art imitates life. Art doesn't imitate like some warped third ring of art that you've been obsessed with for like, you know, eight years or something like that. If you start creating art based on like the, all the art you're thinking about in your head, it's going to be less accessible and it might hurt the product. So, to me, being normal and having normal interactions with people helps you remember what reacting honestly is. Because if you just hang out with your improv buddies, or if you're a painter and you just hang out with your painting buddies, like they're gonna, they're, it's gonna be an echo chamber. You're not gonna hear anything. Like you need to be knocked down every once in a while. You need to go to a party and make jokes and have people roll their eyes and be like, ugh. <laughs> you need that because then you can bring that into a scene and it's it's powerful. That's the one thing. Sometimes improv, you go you'll go weeks and all you'll see are shows that are just improv about improv. And the like that that scene was really fun because mm-hmm. that's a legitimate conversation that people could have with one another mm-hmm. at a crossroads point in their life. Mm-hmm. And why not try to put something like that up on stage? Mm-hmm. I'm all for doing slice of life improv, but if you have an opportunity to actually say something and have have get laughs while actually saying something meaningful or showing something meaningful, you don't have to say something. What like were we that. saying in that scene? Well, uh, I know at least for my character some of that resonated of like someone telling me like you got to have confidence you right know what i mean like you got to make these decisions yourself mm-hmm. um and at least some part of me at some point in time has felt that mm-hmm. so it was easy to react honestly right i think listen you know the first few lines in a scene are really crucial mm-hmm. if someone's telling you something just absorb it mm-hmm. and think about like how would a normal person react and if you're reacting slowly to those things and you're j- not jumping all over right. and being like you know, well, the mailman brought me right. this. Put all these flyers. Right. Oh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And the crowd might be like, oh, weird character. Okay. Oh, what's this guy's deal? Oh, totally wacky. Meanwhile, your scene partner's like, come on, man. Like, I just, I just, like, put dinner out in front of you. How would you react to dinner? Well, I don't know. Sit there. Look at it. Decide what the dinner is. If they haven't already told you, smell it. You know, you take your time with those early moments because mm-hmm. that's going to inform your character a little bit more later in the scene. And that, if you invest that truth early in the scene, it makes it way easier to make snap, quick decisions later in the scene uh, that pay off really huge. If right. you make those snap ones early, at some point you're going to have to come back and invest honestly. Mm-hmm. So you, I, to me, you might as well do it right away. If you don't do it right away, you're going to have to find some time in the middle of the scene well, to do it. And, it. and for me, at the beginning part of the scene, it's like, okay, if these guys are roommates, why is this guy coming into the bathroom? Something must have happened, yeah. you know? And then I kind of looked at you and I thought, well, he may, in that moment, looks a little down. So, you know, some, 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 something must have happened. 
so then the girlfriend came to my mind, and from there it just seemed like it, you know we were off to the races. Yeah, yeah. Actually, let's talk more about those first couple moments. Okay. Like, as soon as I opened that door, it was bathroom, and I was like, okay, a bathroom's probably going to appear somewhere here, right? Right. And I was just glad you didn't make it a public, or we didn't make it a public bathroom. Yeah. Because that's like, you know. That's also why the girlfriend had left. I yeah. decided to make her leave once you mentioned her, because I didn't want to have to deal with a person who's in the scene. It, it was about us. Right, It yeah. wasn't going to be about her in the yeah, other room. right. Uh, it was going to be about maybe what she did to us, uh-huh. but not, like, have... We're not beholden to, like, her right. over here and then having one of us go mm-hmm. over and see that. That's fine, but right. it, it, it draws focus. I think. Right. So, it, as soon as I opened that door, I kind of knew, like, okay, if I open it slowly, it'll it'll give the impression to Jimmy that he is... That I'm intruding on his space. Mm-hmm. And then I'll give you something. And I think it did, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, once you felt that... Then I was able to kind of heighten the fact that I'm being the inconsiderate roommate right now, mm-hmm. but I really got something to say because mm-hmm. we need to talk to each other, right? Because it's improv. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't, it'd be like, hey, oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> didn't didn't know you were in there. Lights. I wouldn't mind seeing more improv like that. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> but. But those like that, the, the chain reaction happens so fast and so subtly in those moments. I'm I'm obsessed with those because that that's the truth comes out of like, it's it's all you need is one tilt, right? If we're both starting the scene in a neutral place, uh-huh. and for the people listening to this, but I've got two index fingers <laughs> pointed at each other, <laughs> and they're on the same plane. All you need is one tilt like that. Now the right index finger. <laughs> has moved slightly above the left one. And what that does is it forces, let's say you're my left index finger, Jimmy. Okay. It forces you to either go like that and heighten. Which I'm a little higher above you, just so you know. A little higher. Okay. And and that's a decision. We'll talk about what that means as a metaphor in a second. (laughs) Or you make make an opposite counter reaction and you move that much lower. And that means now there's separation and we have defined a little bit who we are. Mm-hmm. So you're the roommate. I'm the roommate that does inconsiderate things. Right. And you're the put-upon roommate. Right. And all of a sudden, if you heighten that, what, did you, what, did you, what do you think you did by heightening that? Well, uh, to me, it was just like I, I knew whatever you threw out, my game was it, you're, you adjusted the status. You became low status. And everything you threw me is like you're not getting it. Yeah. Kind of thing. That's all it was. And then we just heighten that, and the details—the details can oh. be what they are. But right. we already know that status, and we're playing it. Mm-hmm. My biggest frustration with improv, whether I'm I'm watching it or performing it with people, is fight over status. Because there there's a movement in American comedy right now that's just one-upmanship, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like who can have the last like zinger before the lights get pulled or before the edit right. happens, you know? And and uh, and you just hope that you're like, okay, if two guys are leaving, it's like, all right, well, see you later. You know, they're getting their zingers in. The guy who actually goes through the door first is screwed because that other guy is going to be like, slam, here comes a stream of bits, and I'm the last person here, and I'm going to get my fill. And that, then you have, it's the same status game over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's just da 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 uh, and th- at that point, listeners, my fingers were going uh, one above the other. Like in a circular motion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but if you have, there are so many different types of status relationships that you can have and ways to change that status. When I came in and, and presented low status, right. and 
since I didn't do it in a wacky way, you were able to take slightly higher status, mm -hmm. and we were able to find organically who we were to each right. other. But we were still too low in, in, in the, the, the universe. Yeah. We were too low status people. We were still too low status people. But how fun was it? I love that. It was so much fun to do that rather than be like, I'm low status, and you're like, well, look, i got to get to my high-powered CEO job, and right. this is a great bathroom. <laughs> like... <laughs> You're, you draw those lines so broadly, where's the fun? You're the, where's the discovery? It's improv. It's supposed to be different every time. Like, why, why go to the same status and the same characters over and over and over again? To me, the fun is finding little moments like that where you're like, you know, you're taking a deck of cards face down. You're putting a card up on your head and a card up on your head, and you don't know what card is yours, mm -hmm. but you see what the other card is. So if I see a four of clubs... For you, I'm gonna get all cocky, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of treat you like dirt. But if you see a three of hearts on my head, you're gonna do the same thing to me. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. If I see a jack of clubs on your head, and you see a, 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 a jack of spades on my head, all of a sudden we're like, ooh, maybe you're high status. Okay, all right, well, very weird. Okay, all right, I'm, I'll defer to you. No, I'll defer to you. Then you have two somewhat high status people deferring to each other. I mean, how do you define that broadly? That's a really interesting, complex relationship. And you can follow that in so many different ways. You put those people in a restaurant, who's going to order first? You put those people around an attractive woman, uh, how are they going to react? You know, who's going to have more courage? Who's going to have less courage? Like, the permutations are far more infinite than if you're like, well, this guy's a hotshot banker and this guy's a homeless person. That'll be funny, but we know what's going to happen, you know? And to, to approach status in a way where you don't know exactly what's going to happen every once in a while, I think is powerful and keeps improv fresh. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever responded to how do you act truthfully. <laughs> We're going to get some questions uh, from the audience because a lot of people are huge Tim Baltz fans. Oh, that's nice. All right. Yeah. Uh, it was really fascinating watching you guys dissect the scene you just did, and I'm mm -hmm. wondering how much of that were you actually thinking about during the scene? Um, I, in those first few moments, I don't know about you, but real rapid fire, I get a sense of what status is real early on in those first moments, and I kind of calculate like who these people are to each other, if there's a status change possible later on, if I even want that, if if the status that they have between one another is something that will be fun to play out. Like, I, I kind of just go along for the ride once I once I read like body language and if anyone's putting out any subtext. So I, I felt like we knew that status pretty early. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, uh, Tim, you talked about uh, liking to hear people laugh. Yeah. Did you pick any of those lines because you knew they would get a laugh? Uh, I don't know. I didn't feel a ton of pressure in that to get laughs. Mm -hmm. They just kind of came, which was nice. It, it didn't look like it at all. I'm just wondering if you mastered that secret. Um, I, you have to be calm in order to do that. You know, you have to be calm in order to approach a scene and not want to get laughs. And I've, I've played with a lot of ensembles and teams where the onus is on getting laughs. So I'm trained to do that too. You know, being on the road trains you to do that in hostile environments. You know, in the middle of Iowa or Idaho or whatever. When you were touring for Second City. Yeah, yeah, it kind of trains you to do that. Um, and you know, a lot of places like I/O and and, uh, and the Annoyance train you to do that too. But there's a there's a, a noticeable difference for me when I'm when I, in my head I'm like, I'm going to get a laugh right now. I'm going to get a laugh right now. But 
the, I, I don't get to play this way very often, so okay. I knew that we would get to have a scene without that pressure, which yeah, is and nice. And just one more thing, and I'll shut up. I, I read a fragment of an interview with TJ, and he said it's not enough to just react to your partner. You also have to understand what your partner just put out there. Oh yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's that's a fun challenge because you can interpret it, but you're also you're also doing kind of a guessing game too. And then your guessing game involves several permutations of what you think they're giving you, you know? So you understand what they're giving you, and then you guess like, oh. To me, when I teach, sometimes I'll talk about buttons. People are just revealing buttons. All the information that they give, whether it's subtext, body language, or, or text, they're revealing buttons. So if someone like kind of says something in a quivering tone, you're like, I think this person's a little scared of me right now. I'm going to push that button, you know? So instead of saying, well, we should go to the bank in a little bit, I might say, like, we should probably go to the bank in a little bit, huh? And that, it'll push that button. And if that person meant to do that, then they know that that button's exposed, and they'll heighten their reaction. They'll be like, yeah, sure, yeah, yes, I'd love, love to go to the bank. And that, that interplay between characters, that guessing game is really fun, because you're reading subtext and body language just as much as you're reading the verbal content that they're giving you. A couple, uh, Tom, right here. I have a quick question for you. You've actually gotten injured a few times on stage. Yeah. Is that ever in the back of your mind for a real heated moment like that, just not to hurt yourself on stage or things of that nature? No, every time I've gotten hurt, I've, I've been very surprised. <laughs> surprised about what? Uh, that The extent to which I was hurt. Were you hurt? Uh, like uh, Two years ago, I, I was doing a sketch upstairs at I.O. after a family tree houseboat uh -huh. accident, and I, it involved me falling on like 30 or 40 cardboard boxes of different sizes. Uh -huh. The last one was this big TV box, and I like went just airborne, parallel to the ground, landed on it, and the corner of it uh, hit me in the Adam's apple. <laughs> and I broke my fall on my Adam's apple, and I luckily only severely bruised my larynx, which made my Adam's apple swell to like this. So you know it's it's real pointy. I have a real pointy Adam's apple. It was like it was like two inches wider. It was I, I couldn't talk. I was totally surprised. I thought I was gonna die in that moment by the way. <laughs> I was like I was I was breathing and I was like, oh no, oh my god, I'm gonna die doing a sketch. <laughs> yeah, we got a question over here. Uh, this is for both Tim and Jimmy. Uh, do you now, after all this experience, have certain areas as performers and improvisers, like a, a place you want to push yourself towards, maybe like an opportunity uh, for growth and stretch as a performer, and how do you approach that? Uh, I mean, to me, every project will reveal different strengths and weaknesses, and the one that I'm coming from, uh, it's very easy to get laughs in an improv set at Second City after they've watched you for two hours get laughs with scripted material. So it's very easy, and uh, you can fall back on some habits that sometimes are um, uh, frustrating for an individual. Uh, myself, I was very frustrated with some of my own improv at that point. I felt like I was getting a little lazy, which you'll hear a lot of people that leave one of the stages say. So for me right now, I'm just focused on like believability. How much do I believe what I'm doing? Because when I started taking classes and doing shows, people would always come up to me and be like, I think you're like... Like, I think something's not right, because I think you actually believe what's happening on stage. And I enjoyed that. And, and Isn't that called acting? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but in improv, sometimes it's tough, because you're trying to make the audience laugh or whatever. So me right now, that's where I'm focused, is just like, just hardcore belief. Because I also think at the next level, you know, because that's where I'm at right now, is thinking like, what, what does success look like at the next level? 
And to me, it's standing in front of directors and producers that are this far away from me that are basically like, do I believe you? And I'm, I'm eight feet away from you. And there's three people in the room and a camera on. Do I believe you? I mean, that you have to convince them. You have to convince them. You can't get away with lazy work or, or poor commitment. You, you can't. So that's my focus right now. Mine, really quickly, is in terms of improv, is is initiating more. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm still afraid to initiate or be, you know, take a really something really strong. I'm really good at following, but that scares the hell out of me. The other thing is like being more honest. Be it in my monologue, be it in this, be it in my improv. How do I become more honest? We got time for one last question, right here. Uh, well, I think, especially right now, what I'm going through is definitely, uh, you have to feel like yourself, and you might know what is capable from a situation, you might think like, well, if I really hit this out of the park, I'll, I'll get X, Y, and Z, but <clears throat> if you're focused on that in the moment, and not on just who you are and what you came there to do, uh, whether it's just make eye contact with someone at a, a friend's party and like get to know them or whatever, or if it's you know making somebody laugh in an intense audition situation. If you forget who you are and what you came there to do, uh, it, it, you, A, you're probably not going to get it. You're not going to have success. And B, if you do, it's going to be pretty hollow, and if you don't admit that, it's going to catch up to you later. So... To me, see, feeling that on stage and feeling that in real life is just a good reminder of take a deep breath, be yourself. Some people aren't going to like you. Some people are. Yeah. Tim Balls, thank you so much for being on that. So there you have it. There's another episode of Improv Nerd. I'd like to thank our guest today, Mr. Tim Baltz, and uh, the good people here at Stage 773 in Chicago. And as always, our producer, Ben Caprero. Uh, thanks for checking us out on Feral Audio. And if you get a chance, check out the other great podcasts they have there, uh, like Brain Warp and uh, Conversations with Matt Dwyer. And if you like what we've done here, uh, certainly you can go to feralaudio.com and donate. Um, if you want to know more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning classes, The Art of Slow Comedy, and my improv blog, please go to jimmycorain.com. And like the Improv Nerd Facebook. Uh, I, please, please, please like us because it really helps with my self-esteem. And again, I want to thank you for listening. I truly appreciate it. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. <laughs> One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also
makes me think like we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode how like just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And, uh, my, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. People. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My... Uh, my... <laughs> 